Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had a chat with Kevin Kelly. Super interesting. So we redid his book, The Inevitable. We initially did it, I don't know, 14, 16 months ago or something. We redid it. It's all about the 12 technological forces that shape our future. And then we obviously asked the big man a bit more and he said... Since writing the book a couple of years ago, he's only got more confident that this is happening. Yeah. We talk about how to utilize um, these, I guess, opportunity with all these new changes coming. So, how can you best position yourselves with it? Mm. Also, some of the things that he doesn't cover in the book, like uh, some of the challenges in the world and how we're going to overcome them. Mm. I found the... Obviously, the first half was interesting, but the second... That was sort of more of the tech stuff, but the second half was just more about how we've got this obligation to get out there and try things. Mm. Um, so I definitely enjoyed that stuff. Yeah, he's all about taking a swing and then, you know, embracing failure. And yes. that's the best way to learn with these all <laughs> these new industries. And if you're listening to, uh, we'll probably ch- we'll chuck the video up on the YouTube channel as well where he gives us a quick uh, look at his two-story library <laughs> in his yeah. house, which is phenomenal. Yeah, he's a big reader. Kevin Kelly. So we've we've been uh, we've been fascinated. We first read the inevitable and did like our little uh, twenty minute episode review of it uh, last October or November, and uh, we had another read and it's it's still got the goods that's for sure. Um, what sort of changed since you published the inevitable and are these these trends still on track, well and truly? That's a fair question. Um, I would say I'm more certain of what I wrote now than before so my certainty about this has increased mm-hmm. um, uh, I of course have more examples of you know maybe what I'm trying to, to talk about uh, now than before um, I might I probably could add some additional trends um, nice. Yeah, cool. nice. So, what are some of those things you would add, or some of those more examples in the last, you know, eighteen months since writing the book? Well, actually, it's been almost uh, since I started the book. It's been years since I actually wrote the book. But um, the examples in AI, of course, are just um, so numerous that it would warrant its own book. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think uh, the um, Continued movement in people moving to access things rather than own them has continued, and there, there's far more examples I could use. These are for the existing trends. If I was to focus on um, the things that I might have added, um, I think that there is a um, uh, a trend to a global culture, a global convergence, despite the rise of Trumpism, Despite the the things happening in Eastern Europe, uh, the Brexit, I actually think that globalism is uh, expanding and away from a trivial sense of um, we're wearing all the same clothes, listening to the same music, going to the same movies. That that variety to um, actually. You know, having the same apps on our phone and um, uh, studying the same courses in school and um, ha- having maybe even uh, similar values for young people and sharing that so that there is a, a convergence, is what I call it, a convergence happening. 
Uh, and that convergence is being run on this new platform, which is global in scale. So you have these um, vast, you know, the, the Facebooks, the platforms, the Facebook and the Google, where you have a, a planetary scale platform in which people are entertaining themselves and eventually will be working. And so um, that's kind of an emerging trend right now that I'm trying to understand. I don't – it's – Half baked, um, but th- th- that's something that I would add, or uh, I would say more about now today than I did even a year or two years ago. Yeah, nice. That's a, it's interesting that because uh, I did like a bit of real, real basic economics in high school, and they talked about globalization, how different countries are trading more freely with each other. But that was probably a super mm-hmm. basic level of you know we're getting uh, rice from Thailand and we're sending sure. over our cattle to China. But you're saying this is sort of the next level globalization where it's people interacting in real time and a lot more uh, almost cl- clashing of personalities. Yes, right. So I think that you're right that the first well, of course, there's been global trade for a long, but the first real step, a level of globalism was um, kind of internationalism where, where um, uh, things are being shipped all around the world and your, you know, your food might be grown in one continent and your shoes made in another one. Um, and that's sort of, I don't know what we want to call that, but that kind of mercantile version of globalism was the first step. But I think we're now progressing to another level where there actually is, in fact, a global machine, a robot the size of the planet, <laughs> or a machine the size of a planet, and 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 that we are um, giving it senses, microphones, eyes, cameras. It's becoming a very visual thing, and we, we and we have an emerging common culture, um, and part of that culture. What's that culture? And that's kind of what's being decided right now. Um, there's a sense of, um, as I said, this access to uh, shift from uh, ownership to access. There's uh, a, a general liberalism. There's, um, uh, you know, uh, what I call the um, third culture, which is this culture of making things as a way of investigating the the world. You you the maker movement, but also you make. Intelligence is as a way to investigate intelligence, um, and so um, I, I don't think you know. There's characteristics of the millennials themselves, and they're kind of the sideways careers and etc. So, so I think there's a bunch of different forces, not all just technological, that are mm-hmm. making this convergence. And then the question is, what's diverging? And I think. I think there's a convergence at the lower levels of the Maslow hierarchy where structural, infrastructural, basic needs, what we wear, what our houses look like, our homes, there's a convergence there. But maybe there's a divergence in what it means and what it, mm. what our aspirations are mm. um, at the higher levels of the Maslow hierarchy. And so um, – that's what I'm conjuring with right now is is what converges and what diverges. Mm-hmm. So you'd when we say, have a global um, machine, go ahead. So you'd say that the the global standard of living you think is going to go up, and and the the people with the have nots or who don't have much um, are going to have an optimistic future as well as the developed countries. 
I think of them as haves and have laters. <laughs> yeah, have nice. nots. Yeah. So, um, the first person, the first people to own cell phones, you know, a generation ago, they overpaid for technology that didn't work very well. But they were actually subsidizing the development of cell phones that became so cheap and worked fantastic so that the street sweeper in India has one today, which nobody would have believed uh, 20 years ago. I mean, it just seemed impossible that there, the economics of that would ever work out so that someone who was homeless somewhere would have a, a smartphone, a, a supercomputer in the pocket. It just economically, you couldn't make an explanation of how that could be. Um, or the the farmer in Tibet who doesn't have a toilet, but they've got a, a phone. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so the all this stuff that we're talking. But yes, the the elite and the ritual will lead. I I don't think that's going to go away. But they are overpaying for technology that doesn't work very well, and that is the subsidy that these you know VR and stuff like that will first happen in these kind of places and then they'll become a commodity that um, everybody will have access to and that I think the the scientific evidence is very very clear that on average um, there's progress mm -hmm. that the, um, the the poorest people in the world are are richer they're, they're middle class and they're and we're lifting the remaining of those into the middle class on average and that's Fantastic. They may not be as rich as the richest people, which are still getting richer, but they're definitely the rising tide is lifting all boats, and mm -hmm. you just can't argue against that. So we certainly want more opportunities for everybody. I think education still has to be improved even for the richest. I don't think we, we, we mm. really know how to educate yet. And so um, – and there's still – plenty of poor to, to bring into the, the middle class. Um, but I, I, so, so I think there's plenty of political decisions that are being made that are stupid, but that's not the fault of technology. Technology is, and that good, mm. plenty of problems that it makes. But my philosophy is that the problems with technology will only be solved by other technologies. Mm -hmm. And, which will produce new problems, which only will be solved by additional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, um, uh, what we get out of that is increased choices, and more choices are better because each of us is waiting for technologies to help us unleash our own individual genius. You guys are sitting in front of technologies that didn't exist mm. even 20 years ago in a certain sense. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you can still be on the radio if you want. You can still write a book if you want. You, all these past technologies are there, but there's a whole bunch of new technology for people to release this inner ability to have conversations and share them that people didn't even know we wanted 20 mm -hmm. years ago. There's so much in there that every as you're talking, new and more and more questions kept coming out. The, sure, the sure. Person, you, you mentioned uh, VR. That, uh, 
I heard in another podcast that uh, I think it was 1989. He said you were one of the first sort of guys to get in and uh, open it up to the public. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it cost a million dollars, but you said that it had all the same stuff as we sort of still have today. But today it's just a hell of a lot cheaper. Right. So, so what? Jaron Lanier, the the pioneer who coined the term virtual reality, his setup was not that different from an Oculus, um, you know. It's a headset, but the difference was that it was like a thousand times more expensive, and so um, that that difference is um, is huge. That's that's mm-hmm. a difference that makes a difference, and so uh, it, and if, but in fact, it's still not cheap enough. It needs to be um, ten thousand times cheaper. So it needs to be a hundred dollars or less mm-hmm. um, right now, and it's not. Um, if you have to buy all the equipment and have the PC supercharged around this stuff, and it's still almost close to a thousand dollars. Do you think we're on, we're sort of on on, the, on track heading down? We are, we are, we are on track. And it's um, inevitable, but there, it is. But there's a, um, and it's just not the the, the headgear, or the, the heads up display. It's you need people to develop the content. It's the usual catch twenty two. Um, I was I was actually involved with uh, I, uh, the whole earth where we made the world's largest hypertext document before the internet, um, which was on a CD-ROM, and it was funded by Apple. It was to do the whole earth catalog in the CD-ROM hypertext uh, form, and the reason why they were funding me is they were trying to sell CD-ROMs, but you couldn't sell CD-ROMs because there was no CD-ROMs to play. Uh-huh. Um, and so they were trying to fund some cool CD-ROMs that would be cool enough that you would be willing to buy this device to play them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and VR has a little bit of that kind of chicken and egg problem, which is there's just not that much completely compelling content mm-hmm. that's not a movie or something um, for people to actually want to to pay so yeah you you have your rig for five hundred dollars and then what do you do with it yeah. so but who wants to make who wants to make it if there's no rig i mean who wants yeah. to <laughs> develop a hundred million dollars into it if they can't sell a hundred million dollars worth of copies and so sure. um so there's there's that going on as well so 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 i think it's still five to ten years away as yeah. at the commodity of being something that you find under the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. But I think most people are going to encounter this in the version of VR, in the version of mixed reality or augmented reality where you wear the clear glasses and you have an overlay of virtual. And they're going to encounter that at work and not just in office space, but like in warehouses. They're starting to wear them, training, uh, you know, People wiring the Boeing aircraft are using them to guide them. Wow. So, so Microsoft wants to make the virtual office where you have as many screens as you want, and that's very effective. And so, I think before it makes it into the under the Christmas tree, um, people are going to counter these first at work, mm-hmm. and not just a little bit more. You know, in the same way that probably before the PCs came along, most people had, if they had any interaction with the computer, it was in corporate workspace which they didn't even really interface with but it was there mm-hmm. sending punch cards or whatever like that so um so i think it's still a ways before it becomes consumer items 
but I think it's five years before maybe some people start to encounter them at work. Yeah, awesome. You say in the book that we're living in this time that, you know, in 2050, people are going to look back at this and say, wow, you were in 2016 and it was such an unbelievable time to be around with all these new technologies and new industries emerging. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, someone today wants to take charge of something like VR and there's not an established industry. How does someone go about learning how to use that in, in whatever industry they may be into, maybe pursue a new business idea or something like that? Yeah, so the thing I want to stress is that there's, this is true of both virtual reality and artificial intelligence and some of these other ones coming along, is that there are no experts compared to where we'll be in 30 years. And that um, you'll learn more by buying some gear and fooling around with it and trying to make something in it than you'll mm-hmm. ever learn by reading anything about it or going to school. And if you pursue that, if you stuck with that for a year, you you would become the world's expert on it. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Okay, and uh, like in AI right now, you can buy right this minute. You can log on to you know Google TensorFlow and you can purchase some AI. You can go to Microsoft and you on Azure and you can buy some AI and you can start messing around with it. And if you if you do that, it's very cheap. If you do that. And pursued it within a year, you would be one of the world's experts on using this stuff. Um, and you might even get some ideas messing around with, with stuff that you could do. And by the way, um, 99% of those ideas will fail to become a business. Mm-hmm. That's just the nature of it. So, so you have to accept that there's, that this area, because it's so unproven, because it's marginal, because it's, uh, uh, at, uh, in the startup zone, it's the death zone. Mm. That's why the big companies mm. aren't there. It's because it's very hard on average to make money here. That's why the people who have very little to lose and can have more time than money can make an advantage. That's why that's where all the startup and innovation is going to come from because you can't really buy innovation. I mean, if you, if if innovation was something you could buy, all the big companies with lots of money would buy it. Apple would mm-hmm. just billions of dollars. They would just buy it. You can't really buy it. You have to earn it and grow it. You 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 it has to come from something that money can't buy, which is tons of failures. Mm-hmm. Big companies are allergic to losing money on failures. They can't afford that. But young people and people starting off can afford to fail because they don't have much to lose. Mm. And so um, they can't really afford to mess around and not have a goal. They can't really afford to to play with it. They can't really afford to um, sustain 99 failures in a row. Mm -hmm. You would think that they would because they've got more money, but in fact, the, the entire structure is engineered against that. Yeah, and as you said, it's sometimes uh, better to not have all that money because either then you, if you've got a lot of money, you're probably going to waste a lot of money trying to just throw money at the problem. Whereas if you don't have the money, you're going to have to innovate and try different things. And as you said, that the big companies don't want to take those risks. When you, uh, it confused me because I'm not a uh, not a techie by any means. But when you say you can just go go to Google and buy AI, what does that sort of mean? What are you buying? What do you what what do you get delivered to you? Yeah. So so. 
what you get is you get access to like um, a server. Mm-hmm. So like 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 say you you had a project, a business, whatever, and you wanted to uh, you had a bunch of pictures and you wanted to maybe your idea was um, I'll look at pictures from TV shows and we'll identify the clothes that they're wearing. Mm-hmm. And then I'll sell them on Amazon. I'll nice. link to Amazon. Okay? Sounds like a good idea. So you could take these stills and you send them to you buy an AI and, and, and uh, from Google to identify the um, perceive what the see if you could identify the the makers or the the maker or the model whatever it is that your idea is, and you would have that AI do that image recognition. Mm-hmm. So you're uploading a hundred images and they're charging you sixty cents. Yeah. Not to identify those images or whatever it is, and then you get the results back. Yeah. So that's, that's so true. so they are running the neural nets on their computers, and you're sending them the data. So basically, you supply data, they give you results and back in data. It's a data processing. So what you're, you know, it's big data, it's yeah. big data processing. But it has, but it's intelligent in the sense that it's doing pattern recognition, which mm-hmm. is, by the way, the only kind of AI that we know how to do right now. Mm-hmm. There's many different cognition types in our brains, but the only kind we've synthesized is pattern recognition. And that's what these ner- deep neural nets do, is they do pattern recognition. So if you have a problem that can, that can be reduced to recognizing patterns, and um, the, the there, there are things about it. One is sometimes you have to train it. Mm-hmm. So you need the training set. Um, First, so part of part of the part of the actually part of the deal with uh, AI right these days is that you have to have a lot of data to um, to be able to train something to train a net to it. So so that's one of the advantages of the big companies like Google is they have a lot of data so they can train these things. But if you are going to do it on your own, you start learning about training sets. And where you're going to get the data? Um, and then you, again, you're into like, do you generate it yourself? Do you own it? Can you buy it from somewhere else? And so, these are the kinds of things that you'll learn. Um, and there's, you know, if you, if you understand that you're just buying pattern recognition, there's lots of things you could do with it, and we don't even know. And that's mm-hmm. the whole point: is that someone fooling around will figure out some something cool to do with it. Mm. Um, some popular advice from from the old school that some of my mates would get. Um, going into university, they'll be told, go into law because it's such a safe career or all that kind of stuff. So these traditional jobs that might get disrupted, what would you say to some of the younger people out there who are <clears throat> in some of these kind of traditional industries and taking kind of the, the, the old school kind of approach to, to a career? There's no doubt that we're going to always need lawyers of some sort and we'll need programmers um, but these professions are definitely being disrupted and shifted with the coming of AI so like if you're in if you're a doctor and starting to be a radiologist that's that's a tough thing <laughs> because a lot a lot of, of radiology's x-ray inspection can be done better by mm-hmm. an AI however there are still going to be those edge uh, issues, the, the edge cases where mm-hmm. you can't tell, you still need to have 
you still need to make decisions based on it. So I always, I'm talking about this idea of a centaur or a team of an AI plus a human, an AI doctor plus a human doctor as a team being much, being the strongest possible one. So part of what I would say is you're going to be paid by how well you work with AIs who are doing some of the tasks you want to do. So you want to be able to integrate with them. Um, much in the way that any investigative journalist is almost integrated with Google, right? I mean, it's kind of like this symbiotic. It's their brain, their long-term memory, and they're they're using this AI all the time, and they can become very good at it. Some people are better searchers than others because they kind of understand how the system works, what kinds of things. They're kind of like the whisperer, like the AI whisperer. And so... Um, to law is one of those things because law is basically a kind of code. It's like software. It's going to be hugely impacted by AI, but it's a lot of the stuff that lawyers don't really want to do anyway. You know, mm-hmm. going through evidence, uh, you know, trying to structure proofs, and they will be assisted by AIs. And so the counsel would be, you don't have to necessarily shy away from being a lawyer. But you have to also know about AI, and if you can do both, you'll be a huge advantage to um, as this you know as as this vocation shifts because it's it's going to be hugely impacted by AI proofs and AI arguments and AI evidential searches and etc. Mm, fantastic. I, I was uh, I was seeing to shift gears a little bit, and you talked in another podcast about the the privilege that we have in that most people, you know, starting out, they think their job should be to just not screw up is the first level. And then after they've not screwed up for a few years and it's maybe find something they enjoy a little bit. And then the next level is maybe something that pays well and that's sort of where they start. Whereas you say, you know, the next level should be finding things that you're the only person that can do it. And also just Mm -hmm. that we've got this privilege of all – I'm assuming that if people are listening to this, they've got four walls and a roof, they've got a nice comfy bed, they've got plenty of food, uh, and they shouldn't just be doing the bare minimum of scraping through and not trying things. Yeah, it's um, it's a very high bar, by the way, um, to to reach, and it may take all your life to get to the point where you are only doing things that, that only you can do. Um, because finding out who we are at that level is really takes takes our life, and in some senses, I would say that is what our life is for. The mission of our life is to understand what our mission of life is, right? I mean, mm. it's kind of like it's recursive <laughs> in that sense. Yeah, our mission is to find out what our mission is, yeah. and so um, it it's um, and I think you know really the only way we know how to do it is there's no formula. Basically, it's tons of dead ends is trying things that don't work it's employing people around us to guide us and help us see things we don't do that we don't know about ourselves it's using the entire resources of of our life to help us illuminate what it is that we have or what combination of stuff that we have that nobody else has and that also of course means looking at the rest of the world realistically to see what it is that they that there is out there. So it's a, it's a complicated, never ending process. Um, but I think if you can arrive there, it's, you know, most of the people that we honor as, 
having achieved a lot, often are in that position where the, what they're doing is like, it's hard to imagine someone else doing that in that way. And that's what we're kind of paying them for, so to speak. And then whether that's not just um, entertainers, that's inventors, that's um, uh, scientists who have a particular knack for understanding this kind of a system that no one else seems to really have. And so um, the way you get there, I think, is not but, – but by the way, not one single of these people arrived there right out of mm. the womb, right out of teenage <laughs> – yeah. There was always a journey, mm. and um, that journey was part of what made them get there. So, so you can't shortcut this. Mm. You have to go. You have to go through the journey. Um, you want to always be failing forward, um, trying stuff. But, but I think my counsel to the young people: the way to get there is not to try to pick your passion and then follow it which is kind of canonical advice but to master something anything mm -hmm. become the world's best at something and then through that mastery you begin to move and discover the things that you are able to do that no one else can do through that mastery first mm -hmm. so this is something you can't think your way to Nice. It's something that you can only do your way through and fail your way to, basically. Fail yeah. in the sense of of um surrendering, you know, trying things and things that don't work and you move on to the next one. So you're 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 evolving, you're moving through it, you're growing, all those terms are, are apt. But you're not deciding and thinking about it as a way to get there. You also talk about uh luck as well and that the in any success it yeah. seems to be a big part of luck and your solution is uh if on one side you got to buy a lottery ticket to win the lottery so buy a hell of a lot of tickets so uh we're not advocating buying lottery tickets but definitely keep stepping up to the plate having a swing trying things event they probably won't work for right, a long right, time right. and eventually they right. will yeah I, I i think the there's a misconception that's actually kind of dangerous that um and some people like Trump believe this is that they have they've made themselves that's due to their hard work or their genius, and neither of those is true. Is most of the people who we consider great are there in a large part because of luck, mm -hmm. and if they're honest, they, they they can acknowledge that. And I certainly say it's true for me. Um, and I think this is important to acknowledge because. It's luck, right? It's not everybody's as lucky. Um, and so um, having said that, there is a certain thing which you, what, what you want to do is when you want to make your own luck, right? You, you, you want to make the conditions in which luck can happen. Mm -hmm. And you do that by moving and trying things. And so there is a, the room for human agency in – creating the conditions for luck and that was the metaphor of buying lottery tickets right so if you you're lucky but you have to buy a lot of tickets and that's what you can do is you can try lots of things you can constantly move you cannot rest you can um abandon things realistically um and so you can you're preparing yourself for the luck to arrive mm. and um so that is something that you can do and 
lucky people often are lucky because they've made themselves ready for luck. Mm. Yeah, if you look at someone like Elon Musk, I think he was, you know, not very far off losing it all and then he had a few lucky breaks and then, you know, arguably the most successful person in the world at the moment. Um, So some of the the things in the book that didn't really um, talk about too much was some of the the challenges uh, that the world's facing now and I think it... It probably represents some of the world's biggest opportunities, and that's probably what Elon's doing now as well. But uh, with things like global warming and the world's resources, are there actual limitations to the progress humans can make? No. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Love it. Resources, in particular, are all substitutable. Um, that's not really, and that's been well established that there's really not much controversy, I think, anymore in the fact that um, we're very capable of finding ways to substitute for resources that are limited, and all resources are limited, but, but um, including oil. But the thing is, the reason why there's, if, there, if what's such a thing as peak oil, why it's not significant is that we just find other things. Mm-hmm. And that goes true for probably for Moore's Laws and many of these other limits. The The, the issue of um, global warming is a little different because that's not a, necessarily a resource thing. I mean, it is in the sense that we're burning fossil fuels, which generates the CO2. And um, so we could shift resources and, and change that. But there's um, uh, that... That's the question is like is there are there problems that are so big that we can't solve them? And I don't think that's true either. I think the solution for the climate change is not personal virtue. This is one Dick Cheney, uh, someone who I have no very little regard for. I do agree in this he says that uh, climate change was not to be solved by personal virtue. But by geoengineering, basically by by large scale global um, technology, which you know um, a lot of people who are in the green community are very adverse to. Mm. Um, but I think it's a global problem. It needs global solutions. Um, it's this is not something to be solved by personal virtue. This is something to be solved by other technologies, and so. Yeah. Uh, carbon sequestration, you know, pumping it into the ground. I don't know what it is. Um, th- this is really the only way, in addition to shifting to nuclear or wind and solar, uh, shifting away from carbon. In addition to that, we also have to do these other um, things. And so um, to manage our climate, and um, that's... Uh, I think it's possible. I, I, we don't think we know how to do it, but mm. it's not inherently undoable. Nice. As we sort of uh, wind down, obviously we read a lot of books, and I can see you got a few books um, behind you. What are some of the, uh, the books? Uh, I've you- got a, a, <laughs> a full library story. <laughs> you said it's a, it's a two-story. Wow. Two-story library. <laughs> well- these, these are just my books. These are just books I wrote. Wow. <laughs> so I guess uh, it might be hard to pick a few recommendations out of there, uh-uh. but where, have you got somewhere to start? Uh, uh, book, the books are recommended to your readers? Yeah, yeah. 
you have to give me a little bit of um, <laughs> um well I sort of I guess I heard uh, as you were talking and you talked about rather than following your passion and you find one thing yeah, to master uh, that's a book we did uh so good they can't ignore you Cal Newport so I guess something sort of along those veins of either uh, how can people do these things as you say getting out there and trying things and letting luck happen or just becoming aware about the future as well either of those yeah um Well, you know, um, in terms of this kind of, you know, career counseling, whatever, I, I still am a huge fan of What Color Is Your Parachute okay, by yeah. Richard, Richard Bowles, which has, he just died this year, I think, or last year. Um, but for 30 years, 40 years, I can't remember, he put out an annual edition um, that is it was actually very good in trying to help people particularly graduates who are looking for work, how to think about this idea, how to think about themselves, how to think about this process, and with many very, very specific suggestions and techniques about you know whether you write a resume or not and how you do these kinds of things and how you find something that you're interested in. So, so um, just from a practical level, check it out. It's been in print for so long. It doesn't really matter too much which volume we can, every library in the world will have multiple copies. Um, so that's always good. Um, <clears throat> what else? So so, so um, there, there is a book that does not exist that I would like to exist. <laughs> um, there's a course that does not exist that I would like to exist. And, and that's the course that teaches the only skill I think that you really absolutely need to have when you graduate from high school, which is how to learn how to learn. Mm. Okay. And, um, we're not taught that in any kind of a rigorous way. Mm. You and I have maybe learned how to learn new things, but we weren't taught in a structured way. We don't even know how we do it. We don't know how we do certain kinds of learning better than others. We don't, actually know how we learn best. And so what I would like to see is the skill set, the curriculum that would teach each of us how to optimize our own learning. And this is actually, again, another high bar, something that I don't actually know how to do. And it would require a very methodical study, testing, evaluation, working with teachers and people from outside to um, try all the different ways of learning things with our hands, orally, visually, kinetically, whatever it is, and many different types of things so that, and then testing and, and then refining those steps that we would optimize our learning in so that when we graduated, we would have a very good idea of how we ourselves learn best. Mm-hmm. That's really the the thing that we need to to be teaching each other, and um, there's I I found one course at Stanford on how to how to learn how to learn, but um, there's nothing else out there, um, and so that's the book and the course I would like to see. Tim Ferriss has done a little bit in trying to understand how he learns best. Mm-hmm. He's the, among all the people that I know who have gone the farthest in figuring out how they can maximize and optimize their learning, but he hasn't actually been able to 
I mean, he's an individual. So you need to someone who is working with many kinds of people mm-hmm. to be able to develop this. So it doesn't exist yet. Um, mm. And that's the book I'd like to read. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind, of, it's <laughs> kind of unbelievable that that doesn't exist yet. It's probably the most vital skill that we could ever have in our lives. And no one's really, right. really cracked it or really, you know, other than Tim has done it to some degree. <laughs> right. Yeah, love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, Kevin. That was phenomenal. Yeah. Just as uh, as we wrap up, obviously, where can where can people find you? Obviously, the the book, the inevitable phenomenal blog, kk dot org. Yeah. Um. Uh. You, you know, you mentioned my my email is very public. Um. As well uh, on the site there. Um. I tweet a little bit as Kevin two the number two Kelly Kevin number two Kelly. Um, but cool tools is uh, going and the thing that I'm, uh, kind of having the most fun these days with is, uh, email list called recommendo Mm -hmm. one M it's, um, Mark Fernfowder and I who run boing boing, uh, he runs boing boing and cool tools together. Uh, every week we make, um, uh, Recommendations, very six brief recommendations of cool stuff, whether it's something we're watching, listening to, people we're following, books that we've read, tools that we're using, places we go to. It's six very, very brief, um, one page in total recommendations every, every Sunday we send it out. And, um, so go to recommendo with one M, um, and you'll find it and sign up. Um, and we're, ha- we're having fun with that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Kevin. That was uh, phenomenal. Great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Kev. Yep. We hope you enjoyed that interview. We just wanted to remind you, we've read some bloody good books this season so far, and you can win them all. Yep. So we've got a, a prize. So there's three ways you can enter this, and it is absolute bonanza. Yeah, man, it is a bonanza, you know. <laughs> Seven habits of highly effective people, if you can grow rich, start with why, to name just a few of the 48 books that you can win. So you can firstly uh, fill out the survey at whatyouwillearn.com slash survey. Very short, two minutes. Yep, and you can see that in the show notes of all our episodes. The, the second one is leave a review for us. Yep, you'll find that. And the third way is to just buy a book. Yep. Have a read, send us a picture of the book or the receipt or something at uh, podcast at whatyouwillearn.com and yeah that's it you can enter three times three yeah, chances three to times. Win. each time probably maximum three minutes time investment yeah. and you could land 50 fucking good books which you can use yourself or give us gifts yeah good shit